0: Well, hello, good evening, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you're joining us this evening. A Reason for Hope, in case this is your first time with us, is a live broadcast dedicated and guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, um, questions you may have on the Bible, maybe uh, over Christian living or verses and passages in Scripture that have maybe uh, confuse you, you'd like to uh, dig deeper into, we are here to humbly seek um, the Lord and his word with you. We only ask that it's an honest question from the heart, and uh, we're happy to explore those things with you. Uh, Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian um, Fellowship of Tucson, so you can watch us in multiple ways at com. Follow the Watch Live um, tab and you can find us there. On Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we're live there also. On YouTube at A Reason for Hope. You can also email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com, all spelled out there. You can also watch us on the big screen if you find the Calvary Christian Fellowship app on Roku or Apple TV um, or indeed on your phone. So multiple ways that you can... Uh, join us. And we're very glad that you are joining us in, in, indeed. And you can send your questions into the chat functions on those uh, platforms, or again, to our email address at questionsforhope at gmail.com. With, with me today, my name is Dave Robson. I'm your host. And with me is Pastor Sean Richards, as often is. How are you doing today, Sean?
1: have having an uh, interesting day. My forehead hurts, as those who are seeing my live screen for Performance, but hopefully the content won't change because of it.
0: Amen. Amen to that. And also Scott Richards, who is the senior pastor here at Calgary Christian Fellowship. And my forehead's doing just fine. Doing, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think I
2: think we've gotten through the the uh, report on that.
0: So. yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> and uh, Pastor Scott was the you know the founder of a reason for hope. I was thinking today that's about twenty years ago when um 9-11 the horrific events yeah 9-11 yeah i understand that you and pastor robert furrow at uh, calvary tucson went on the radio yeah. to be available for yeah. people who had questions yeah that was a very brave move <laughs> well you know actually you know it's just one of those things where the lord
2: kind of raises you up for such a time as that uh before i went into ministry i spent quite a bit of time in uh, broadcasting i actually hosted uh secular and christian radio programs and uh, trying to make ends meet as I went through grad school and so on. Uh, and uh, it really kind of put us in a, a really neat position when that, that horrible set of circumstances went down. Uh, you know, my wife Pam and I were praying, you know, after watching the second uh, plane hit the towers, mm. and we just felt in our hearts that uh, the Lord was saying, there's got to be people out there that are panicked, freaked out, have all kinds of questions, is this the end of the world, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, a a friend of ours ran the Christian radio station in town, and we were broadcasting our normal half-hour taped uh, Bible uh, teaching programs, excerpts of sermons that we do here. And uh, we were on at 5, and uh, Robert Furrow from Calvary Tucson was on at 5.30. So I called him, and I said, hey, how about if we go down to the radio station? there got to be people out there with questions. How about if you and I go on the air? And uh, we'll open up the phone lines and answer questions. And Robert was well, I don't really have any I said, don't worry about it. I've done this before. All you have to do is answer questions and I'll push all the buttons and, and so on. Hmm. And, and so he goes, well, let me pray about it. And I said, all right, you pray about it. But if God tells you while you're praying one good reason why you shouldn't be on the air answering people's questions on a day like this, then you don't have to come. So he called me back about 15 minutes later. He says, my wife and I talked about it, and we I decided it find a reason, probably a yeah. good idea to, for me to be there. <laughs> so uh, so we went down, and there was such a strong response to the just opening up the phone line for Bible-oriented questions, and it started out with 9-11 questions, and, and then people started calling with other questions that they had, that uh, we decided that uh, there was a real place for this uh, a real need for this kind of ministry. So we started out doing a half an hour of Bible question and answer once a week and then pretty soon that filled up and then uh, the owner of the Christian radio station said I want you to do this 5 days a week. This will be great. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, in a small market like Tucson, where are we going to get the questions?" And, and you know, but the Lord brought people out who had those kind of questions and one thing led to another and we advanced it to an hour. Uh, five days a week, and uh, from there we ended up uh, for a while doing a syndicated uh, version of the broadcast all over the country, and uh, what with the advent of the internet and so on, uh, it's gone through some twists and turns, but uh, we've uh, finally gotten it into the uh, edition you see here today. It's really Mm. been exciting to see how God has used that, and every day, you know, we don't rehearse questions or, uh, you know, plan these sort of things out. It's just whatever uh, comes in, whatever's on people's hearts, and and uh, the Lord seems to honor that.
0: Yeah. yeah, Amen. I was thinking today too, and uh, you know, I wondered if you guys would agree. We we don't always have all the answers to the questions. You know, the the even the Bible says God's ways, His thoughts are higher than ours. Who can understand the the mind of God? And I was thinking about that nine eleven going on the air and answering questions. You know, sometimes if there are answers, they're kind of they can be messy. You know, it can be the answer can be we don't fully know. We know God is good. We know God is to be trusted, Um, but we also know that His ways and His thoughts are are higher than ours. You know, and so sometimes, especially you know, questions we get that's in people are in sort of painful maybe times of life and they're asking these questions. Sometimes the answers are difficult. You know, sometimes there's not always every little. I guess what I'm saying is the answers aren't always tied up in a nice little bow and a package. You can say, oh, yeah, great, 9-11, I see now. Um, But we know the Lord can be trusted, and we know that that he knows the answers, even if we can't quite understand in in our present form. Yeah, you You know, know. it kind of comes down to, Sean, I think you'd agree, the uh,
2: time-honored question when something like 9-11 happens and 3,000 people lost their lives just by going to work that day. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, we get that question a lot. Yeah, and again, the fancy way of addressing it can
1: oftentimes address so much of the facts of the matter that you miss the fact you're actually speaking to a person rather than a, you know, uh, info sheet or something. You're not just filling out the answer to get all the facts covered. Mm -hmm. If I were to ask factually, why did 9-11 happen? It would be this book right here. But if I were to ask personally why God didn't prevent 9-11 from happening, I could again answer it very callously and say, well, doctrinally, there's no reason or no promise to hold against God that would prevent him from allowing us to abuse our free will, especially when it comes to him giving numerous warnings against Antichrist and false doctrines that, again, this religion is based off Mm -hmm. of. For those listening on Reach Radio, I'm holding up a copy, my copy, of the Quran. So understand that when we're talking about the consequences of false beliefs, the consequences of false doctrine, we see exactly why God said truth matters. But if on the other hand we take a step back and go, but why didn't God prevent me from experiencing these feelings? And again, it's tempting to just address the issue as if it was a straightforward question. Well, what, Ultimately, as far as the eternal scope of things, do your feelings actually matter? At the end of all of this, does it change the fact that God is good when things other than God aren't being good? Mm -hmm. And of course, you can end up missing the real heart behind the issue. They're not asking for a citation of Surah 929 and the call to subjugate non believers because, according to Surah 9 and verse 30, we are under divine punishment for saying that Christ is the Son of Allah. That we could go into the uh, international intrigue and demographics of the man who inspired the 911 attacks, Osama bin Laden and his prophet before him when they recognize us as a quote-unquote Christian nation and don't make the distinction, which Islam doesn't, between church and state. When we look at all these facets and issues, the person who asked the question is still sitting there and going, I can't spell philosophy, let alone grasp what you're getting at. So that gives me an opportunity to take a step back and go, okay, given the facts on the table, did God ever promise that 9-11s wouldn't happen? No. Should we expect anything less than 9-11s to be happening, not just— Today, but every day, and the answer is no. So then we have to fall back on what we do know. When and it's not that you know we just don't know the answers. We can. People are not God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Things other than God won't act like God. If God allows this, does that show that He's negligent, or that He's, uh, or that we would wish that He was tyrannical? And that's oftentimes the dilemma I want to encourage people's thoughts into because at the moment. When people are asking these sort of questions, why does God let bad things happen? They're assuming that a world would be better if there wasn't a world to begin with, Mm. and that's an easy thing to say when you're in pain. Oh, if I had never had this foot, then I wouldn't be feeling the pain of stubbing it. Oh, if I didn't have this head, then it wouldn't be aching right now, and on and on it goes. But then you realize, I like my head I, I like where it is that even though it's not comfortable at the moment i can put a hat on it it's great there are benefits to this and the same thing is true the fact that god lets people make mistakes is the same reason and the same reasoning god is employing that allows us to make the most important decision or a restored relationship with him the fact there are consequences to that doesn't change the fact that this is still an open offer and if anything else it uh, definitely ups the Annie, and the reminder that we're not promised a tomorrow. We're surrounded by people who do buy into false doctrines. Let's not be one of them. We're surrounded by a world that, whether at the hand of nature or the corrupt nurture of false doctrines, we could be taken out at any moment. We can then live in fear, or we can use that as sure. an opportunity to pursue something through faith. But that's, again, the whole point. Do I blame God for what God didn't do? Or do I ask myself, what am I doing in the midst of things other than God doing? What things other than God have always done?
2: Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Absolutely. Jeremiah commented through our website, we will eventually have all the answers in heaven and we will know and understand everything eventually. And that's a wonderful mindset to have. And with that in mind, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray yeah. for us as we Absolutely. delve into... Yeah. The rest of the show. that yeah. be great. Yeah, Father, I
2: thank you so much that we have the chance here today to explore your word, and we pray that you would guide the journey. Lord, you would uh, bring the right questions to the forefront, and thank you again, Lord, uh, that uh, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and boy, do we need that, especially in times like these. So anoint us, empower us, and bring honor to your name in the next few minutes, we mm-hmm. ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Amen. It's true. Amen. All right, so
1: starting us off, what kind of questions do we have ahead for us?
0: Well, we had a question come in from Fernandez. He says, Is it okay if my wife is stronger, faster, older than me? What did Peter say <laughs> when he said women are the weaker vessels? Thanks. Okay, so that was the
1: proper <laughs> yeah. handling of 1 Peter 2.
2: Three, uh, First Peter chapter 3 and uh, verse 7. Uh, does say this, husbands likewise dwell with them, that is referring to their wives, uh, with understanding, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate and controversy over this idea. What does it mean that a woman is the weaker vessel? Now, the, the simplest explanation, going back to good old Occam's razor, uh, William of Occam came up with the idea that uh, when we evaluate something, uh, all things considered, the simplest uh, explanation is usually the best. Well, the idea of the weaker vessel is that, uh, generally speaking, if you were to take a look at our species, uh, men tend to have more of that magic hormone testosterone than women. Uh, there are uh, controversies these days, uh, especially about uh, some men who believe that they are women competing in women's athletics and, you know, again, not really doing very well in men's athletics, but dominating in those other fields. That would be that the idea of weakness there doesn't have anything to do with a spiritual weakness uh, as much as it is the fact that one of the things that God has called uh, men to do is to look out and protect and watch out for the welfare of their wives. And the last time I checked, girls like that sort of thing, a guy they can depend on, not just for safety, but security. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, getting, I guess, to your question, Fernandez, is it okay if my wife is stronger, faster, or older than me? uh, Again, um, you know, different strokes for different folks. I will say that in different areas uh, we do find uh, that, uh, in my experience, uh, for instance, uh, I, even though, uh, I've, uh, been a runner for quite some time, uh, I have to admit my wife, who at one point was a professional triathlete, uh, certainly is a stronger swimmer than I am. She made the Olympic trials in the backstroke. I couldn't keep up with her on that. And, uh, much to my chagrin, I confess openly that she has a faster time, uh, PR-wise in the 10K race than I do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, there aren't other areas where we compensate for one another. So, you know, the the physical and uh, looking at things through the physical, Fernandez, I'd say, is the, the least important thing. Uh, the most important thing is uh, what is being emphasized in that passage, that you look at your wife as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, we've got to uh, take a look at our relationships that we have on the horizontal and realize that they do impact things in the heavenly. You know, God isn't just going to sit there and say, man, you were really mean to your wife today, but I'm just into spiritual stuff, so don't worry about it, Uh, we'll just move on. No, God is going to say, let's deal with the elephant in the room, let's deal with the relational stuff, on the horizontal, because what we do in the horizontal does have an impact in how we connect with God in the heavenly. So to note, it's not saying women as a rule are
1: inferior. It's noting either a physical weakness and thus a requirement on the man's part to be sensitive to that, and also note it goes on what else to describe, this being a spiritual conversation distinction. Not to say, and again, we're not Muslims, we don't believe women are spiritually deficient to men. We're noting the point, Peter saying, be a good husband, not an abusive one. Don't model Genesis 3 as the new commandment. <laughs> Say it as <laughs> yeah. the uh, thing that's ne- needing to be fixed. That's the point. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, another question, I guess, t- several questions from Leon. Or
0: yeah, the, the laws. Yeah. Uh, Leon asked, was there laws before the Ten Commandments? I can note the first law, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge
1: of good and evil. Mm -hmm. That was the first law, and we couldn't get that straight. But uh, what's also interesting as well is, and this is an interesting one that I've had conversations with people online about. uh, We'll follow up on the rest of the question here in a moment. But when people ask the question, you know, Moses was obviously the first guy God used to reveal his nature in writing, so when people ask the question, am I doing what God would have been doing in this situation, they could check, and they would have direct access to that, and people say, oh, so from the time of Adam all the way to Abraham, they wouldn't have had that, even going into the time of Joseph, and the answer is actually no because understand that just because God wasn't revealing in writing doesn't mean there wasn't a revelation available for God. The reason I say that is because in the book of Genesis chapter 5, we're given an interesting detail about uh, a man's longevity before the time of the flood. And note, the dates here aren't one to another. It's not that he lived such and such a time, then he finally had one kid and died. We're not like, you know, honeybees or anything like that. He continued to have children through this time span, and his children interacted with him during this time span. It's an inference, but it's an informed one. In Genesis chapter 5, we're told in verse 3, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So that all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, Genesis 5 will go point by point through the genealogy of the line of Seth, contrasted to the line of Cain, which ended in Genesis 4, and it leads into Genesis 6, for those of you doing the basic edition. But what's interesting about the 800-plus years that Adam was living— understand that that timeline would put us right about at the point where we read in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 28 when Lamech was 182 years old and had Noah. Noah was born around the same time chronologically that Adam died. And if you remember, Adam was witness to, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, a personal revelation of god on a daily basis with him and his wife the mother of all living eve and what's interesting about that encounter is i don't think he was quiet about it (laughs) when we're talking about what people knew what to do and what not to do there were examples for instance in genesis chapter 4 where Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices to the Lord. Now, who would have taught them that? Did they just decide someday, I'm going to kill that animal? No, they were doing this with an intention, and one that would specifically pertain to their relationship with God. And when Cain was upset about his offering, God called him out as if, you know what you ought to be doing. Right. So there wasn't just an expectation, but the assumption they also had access to information. And who was that? Well, we can start with Adam. But we then can continue on and go to the time of Abraham. Now, Abraham also had some regular interactions and intervals with God himself, did he not? Yeah. And that's the point. People were given personal revelation from God until writing became the norm. So if that's then the case, there weren't an absence of laws. There was a different means by which we understood the law. It's the same as we do today. What would Jesus do? But then they could just go, well, he knows him. What did he do? Yeah. And that was the difference. So we can't say that during prehistory that there were no laws. There were people who rejected the standard of the law, which was God's nature. That was the lineage of Cain. And we know those who lived apart from God, like Genesis 11, the nations that were scattered who rejected the call to, be, to spread out, to be fruitful, multiply, to fill and subdue the earth. They gathered right. all together at Babel yeah. in rebellion against what? the law that God gave them, the revelation that they had. So it's a non-starter to say uh, the hypothetical follow-up on this. Since there were no laws, would this be a more plausible interpretation? Now, there were plenty of laws. They just didn't put them in writing. Revelation was on a person-by-person basis, not a codified one, a book-based one.
2: Yeah, yeah. and I, I mean, we could point out a number of, of uh, situations where God had revealed his truth uh, long before Uh, the time the Ten Commandments came on the scene. You know, we think about, uh, first of all, a fellow by the name of uh, Melchizedek who uh, came to Abraham, uh, or met Abraham, and uh, he was a priest of the Most High God. I thought he was
1: a Jebusite king. What's this this pagan foreigner doing with an understanding of God to the point where he was a priest? Yeah, And the author of Hebrews would then compare him to Jesus. Yeah, and
2: uh, a priest does one of two things. They represent God to man or man to God. And so uh, evidently he had some revelation uh, of god Uh, i think about noah and the commandments that he received coming off the ark god gave him instructions as well so yeah there definitely leon there were uh, definitely laws uh, before the ten commandments Mm. so then as the follow-up to that not just the laws but what was the follow-up question
0: yeah if the sons of seth and daughters of cain are the neph uh, nephilim how could this be when there was no laws? Wouldn't it make more sense that it was uh, fallen angels instead of humans since there were no laws? Well, we Is first established here that there were, in fact, laws. Right. Uh,
2: Cain and Abel understood the laws of God. Uh, evidently, there were laws because uh, we are told that uh, in Genesis chapter 6 uh, that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually and that the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth at that point and so uh, there were definitely laws and laws that were being uh, broken at that point. As far as uh, the sons of uh, Seth and the daughters of Cain uh, being the ones that uh, gave us in a sense the Nephilim, that's generally speaking the point of view that we take uh, on this broadcast. There's an awful lot of uh, uh, internet clicks and books written about uh, the Nephilim being the offspring of uh, the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men saying that the sons of God were angels, but uh, we we're told again that the term sons of God uh, can equally and uh, aptly apply to people who had a genuine relationship with God as opposed to those who don't. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons
1: of God. Um, if you want to stick to the Old Testament, Hosea 1.10 notes that the nation of Israel were also considered sons of God because it's not describing your genus, it's describing your relationship.
2: And when people bring up this idea that the sons of God were fallen angels, well, there's a huge problem with that, at least in, in my estimation. Uh, they'll point to the book of Job where it talks about the sons of God coming and presenting themselves before God in Job chapter 1 and verse 8, and we were told, and Satan also came in among them. Now, notice there's a contrast between Satan and these sons of God to begin with. The other thing that we never find in the uh, Old Testament is uh, the idea that uh, fallen angels or fallen human beings would be referred to as sons of God. It implies a family relationship there. So uh, when it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and took wives for themselves of whom they chose, another big issue that we have with that. Is jesus statement in matthew chapter 22 that uh the uh that uh, angels are uh you know that those who enter into the kingdom uh neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in other words the angels don't have reproductive capabilities so there's no need for that for spiritual entities there so uh you know again uh there are those you know, in calvary chapel circles would take the exact opposite point of view that the, uh, the Nephilim were the offspring of fallen angels and regular human beings. It seems, though, to me, the other kicker in that direction is that uh, when we take a look at the context of the first five books of the Old Testament, that is uh, the Pentateuch as we know it, uh, we're getting into the first book of Moses, really. Moses is the one who put together the book of Genesis. Now, you might recall that in all of the satanic strategies that were used to take down Israel, one of the most effective was um, after the false prophet Balaam uh, tried to curse Israel and God wouldn't let him to do it, uh, he evidently said, oh, I've got the perfect alternative. Just send those Moabite women and Midianite women down into the camp Uh, have them strike up romantic relationships and say, oh, honey, you know, it would be so much more romantic if we could have a little idolatry before things went any further, Mm -hmm. and it worked like a charm. The 23,000 Israelites fell as a plague along that line. Really interesting, uh, and it's almost like when we take a look at Genesis chapter 6, we see a shot over the bow. What was being prophesied there or described there? Uh, I believe what was being described was that the sons of God, that is the godly line of Seth described in Genesis chapter 5, were getting together and having unequally yoked relationships with the daughters of Cain, uh, hence the sons of men uh, being involved there. And because of that spiritual compromise, the knowledge of the true and living God was uh, really being threatened from extinction on the earth at that point. I think there's a a lot uh, more of an applicable biblical principle there than kind of going out in the twilight zone and saying, oh, well, you know, that's how these giants got going, and, and uh, you know, if you're not careful, then uh, uh, demon's going to come, and, you know, and everybody's got a story. So I, I do think it's a picture of the dangers of being unequally yoked, not sharing uh, the a relationship with Jesus Christ as the foundation of your relationship more than anything else.
1: Plus, associating your relationship with God is tied into your genetics is a non-starter. The nation of Israel wasn't righteous because they were sons of Abraham. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10, the Messiah is predicted to the one in whom the non-Jewish nations would place their hope, and that was prophesied. Yeah. So when we're talking about this issue, I'm just trying to understand Leon's logic in that because there were no laws, or at least no written laws, therefore that would cause the fallen angels aspect to be a more rational one. I think there's a misunderstanding, and again, I'm racking my brain about this, about what laws are. Laws don't determine re- reality, they simply reflect the foundation of it. A bad law could be in conflict with God's nature and still be written, right. but a law that is in alignment with God's nature is by definition a good law, but notice whether you wrote anything or not, it wouldn't change. So if there were wasn't a written rule that demons weren't allowed to copulate with attractive women in Genesis 6, that wouldn't suddenly have become a rule like, oh, God's saying I forgot to write that down. I better prevent this from happening because apparently it happened again in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 32. They were in Canaan. So either the term nephilim just means the the, the big guys in town, or it's uh, this bizarre and anachronistic idea of oh well these uh, half demon hybrids were trying to undo salvation in Hebrews two sixteen through eighteen. Angels aren't given aid, but they are given aid to the sons of Abraham. See your genetics. Noah was perfect in his genealogies. Yeah, a godly line, not a weird superhuman. Yeah, you know, I, I don't get, I don't even get want yeah. to get into it. But the point yeah. being made is that. Laws don't become morality. Morality is reflected in laws, and morality isn't based on what laws are or aren't written. It's in the nature of God. It's a non-starter to say these demons would have had free reign to do this because we know angel or demon, your relationship with God is the difference. Right? Wouldn't A, be identified as sons of God. B, human beings can be identified as sons of God. C, when it comes down to it, you have to take this at face value. What's been told to us? Have angels in any sense have been mentioned in the first six books or six chapters of Genesis? No. You may say chronologically in the book of Job they might be known by Israel at this point, but it's a non-starter. The only things that have been mentioned are the lineages of Seth and the lineages of Cain, and we do have a historical precedent, as you mentioned, during the time of Balaam and Balak's scheme that would be this as far as a legitimate warning to be had. But if on the other hand you'd ask, well, what would be the application otherwise? You want to go the alternative route. Don't get accosted by angels, I don't know how you'd prevent that. <laughs> so the point we made is yeah. there is no application, there is no historical application or definition provided, there is no consistency in how you're handling the scriptures apart from assuming your conclusion rather than forming it, and of course it just sounds funky, but that's an opinion. So Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: but but apart from that it's
1: a
0: perfectly possible yeah. explanation. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> yeah. Leon, thank you for your question, yeah. we appreciate yeah. being part of the broadcast, and yeah. again be sending your questions in on the on the chat platforms that you're joining us on, or it's uh, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Because as we are live, we are um, monitoring those questions. I have a question here written on paper. Do you remember paper? Remember that? Yeah. Got a pack pile of it right here. Back when, yeah. Oh, yes, you do. Yeah. What does the Bible say about killing someone in self-defense or in war? There is a literal passage in the not only Ten Commandments, but the chapters following
1: it, Exodus 21 through 24, that discuss the government-based laws for Israel, and one of them goes into great detail about laws concerning violence. Now, just to summarize, you can look this up on your own, but if there's a home invasion and you're defending yourself, that is not Uh, Going to be resulted in life for life. If you have an animal and it's known to gore, you're held responsible for the life of your animal. But if, on the other hand, it was a freak accident, you're not held responsible. The animal's simply put to death. If, on the other hand, you're put in a situation where, and again, you're told to do something whether it's in the context of war or otherwise there would have to be either a a condemnation of wars as a profession or warriors as a profession mm-hmm. or there would be an abolition of a military in israel since the only one who has the right to kill anyone is god well we know that's not the case because in romans 13 it notes uh god's giving the sword to the governmental authorities and not doing so in vain it's not an empty thing we'd also note the point of emphasis when the um uh, prophet John the Baptist was talking to soldiers and they were asking how would we prepare our hearts for the Messiah and he didn't say quit killing people you're, you're murderers and the only way to be a soldier is to be a murderer no he says don't intimidate anyone and be content with your wages yeah. so if there was an opportunity to condemn soldiery it was missed by a guy who had the right and opportunity to say it. If we note the Apostle Paul's observation under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say the government bears the authority, a military is a legitimate role of the government. Note, it does mean it can't be abused, yeah. but it is not an illegitimate one by definition. And you also go to the foundation of Israel's laws, determined by God's nature and speaking to them at that time. He doesn't condemn them for either a killing in self-defense, protecting against a home invasion, And he notes a distinction between accidental death and intentional death or negligent death. And that's the point.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I guess to add to that, people will point out uh, Jesus' statement in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, not to resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. And they will say that that indicates pacifism. But the idea of striking on a cheek uh, wasn't the idea so much of physical violence as much as it was an insult uh, to. excel all insults at that particular time. Uh, as far as uh, self-defense, or taking care of your family, or things like this, uh, you know, there, there is no passage in the scripture that would argue against that. In fact, we are told in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse eight, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. If, uh, you know, heaven forbid, someone breaks into our house tonight and uh, threatens my family, for me to go, well, you know what? Unless God strikes you with a lightning bolt, I am such a godly guy, I'm just going to, because I'm going to turn the other cheek here, uh, if I were to stand before the Lord and try to explain that, I don't think he would take a -hmm. a very high view of that particular logic. Uh, Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for a friend. Uh, You know, again, Jesus was the ultimate example of that, being willing to die for us, but, uh, you know, on a, a smaller level, uh, if we aren't willing to lay down our lives for the people that we love and here and now, I'm not
0: sure how we call ourselves Christians. So Yeah, yeah. great answer. Thank you yeah. for that. It was a nameless question, but we hope that you're with us, and um, thank you for, for sending that question in.
1: Got a question from Essay on YouTube, do we not? Um, go ahead, if you see it there. Yeah, Second yeah, uh, Samuel 16, when uh, Shammai was cursing David with a judgment <laughs> from God, as David assumed, or was Shammai just being a jerk? Uh, it's the latter. Uh, we know that because after Shammai was uh, given literally the rest of David's lifetime to either seek reconciliation or to call back the cursings that he laid on him because Shammai was a supporter of King Saul when he was leaving the city, um, there was an interesting... I guess, uh, follow-up instructions to David from Solomon that mentions him specifically by name. This is 2 Kings chapter, or 1 Kings, rather, chapter 2 and verse 8. You see, you have with you Shammai, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Manahaim. But, uh, but he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore... Do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, and know what you ought to do with him. Bring his gray, down, uh, gray hair down to the grave with blood. Now, people will say, well, that's a historical review. It doesn't mean that that was a good decision by King David. Maybe he was being vindictive, you know, stewing and in those insults for a while, and he's just like, you know what, Solomon, just kill that guy. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. When David was giving his final instructions, the point of emphasis was Shammai had gone from a brown-haired to a gray-haired man, And was still cursing King David and so with the passing of power from David to Solomon he reminds him this guy's only going to be trouble to you and he mentions a few other people for the same reasons as well he spent his entire life unrepentant and cursing God's anointed now because he hadn't uh, sought reconciliation he was going to get the conflict he was insinuating
2: yeah you know as far as the uh, essence of that question the only thing I'd add is in 2nd Samuel 16 uh, when Shemai was cursing David talk about kicking someone when they're down he's fleeing Jerusalem because Absalom is going to take him out if he doesn't uh, and uh, Shemai finally feels like it's his time to get even with this uh, guy that had usurped in his mind a uh, good old Benjamite by the name of Saul yeah. uh, and uh, and so uh, he was cursing him. He was calling David a bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought you down upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you're caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Well, that sounds like uh, someone pronouncing a curse. See, God wouldn't let you get away with it, David. You're going down. Well, Abishai, uh, one of the sons of Zeruiah, who was I guess part of David's uh, special forces, said, why should this dead dog curse my Lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. (laughs) So you you can see that uh, Shammai was doing a great job of cursing and had kind of provoked this response. Then the king says, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Let him curse, because the Lord maybe has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And uh, David uh, said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son... Who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse? For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing that day. You know, I love David's attitude here. He's kind of like, um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe God is telling him to curse me. I I don't know the mind of God at this particular point, but God will balance the books. God's going to show us who's who and what's what. Um, You know, it's interesting how there's another proverb that says, uh, don't curse uh, your enemy when he's fallen, or the Lord might hear you cursing him and bless him instead. So, Uh, You know, the bottom line is this. Uh, If if someone is cursing you, if someone's running you down... You have uh, an
1: interaction on the internet.
2: Yeah. uh, You know, one of the the, uh, most interesting conversations, or at least among them, that I had uh, with Chuck Smith when I went on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa uh, was something like this. I said, Chuck, you know, you're in a high-profile position, and there are literally people who spend their days on the internet with an IHateChuckSmith.com website, Uh, doesn't that bother you? You know, doesn't it bother you how visible some of your critics really are? And he kinda smiled and he said, well, I've discovered something. If you spend your time trying to answer all the charges that critics make against you, that is all you're ever going to do. You've got a choice. You can defend yourself or you can let the Lord defend you, but you can't do both. And so Chuck would let these people while away their hours from trailer parks and sticks uh, doing Mm. IHateChuckSmith.com, but ultimately, you know, they're going to stand before God someday. And I don't know, I just don't think it's going to go super well for somebody that spent their whole life uh, dishing out bile and innuendo and half-truths and gossip and so on. Uh, over the internet, there's far better things for us to be doing with our time than that sort of thing. So David, I think, modeled that. He was like, well, I'm not really in a place where I can defend myself right now. I'm fleeing my own son. This is not a good time for me. Um, This guy is just a distraction. He's just an afterthought. And as you mentioned, Sean, Shemai ended up uh, getting his a little later on down the road. But uh, David gave plenty of time for this guy to repent and plenty of time for God to um, try to reach him. Uh, he refused that and eventually reaped what he sowed.
0: So, Thank you so much. Thank you for that question. We have a question from Katie. What is Yom Kippur and should we be doing something as Christians to celebrate it? Well, um, Yom Kippur, want to give us the uh, thumbnail s-
2: sketch? In two words, it's the Day of Atonement. Uh, It's
1: a Jewish festival that's, of course, from Scripture directly, and it was supposed to be a day where, under law, you were supposed to spend the whole day in mourning under pain of death. Now, of course, it's just like you can't, legislate an emotion. The idea was stay at home, make sure that you're uh, emphasizing not uh, going into public gatherings and stuff, and you were violating this, you're violating a very serious command from the Lord. And of course, the Lord is the king, violating that knowingly and knowing the penalty, that's the point. But the point being made is the word Day of Atonement was the one day a year where the high priest would go into not just the temple of God, they did that every day, but the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, to offer the blood of the spotless lamb on the altar, not just for well, his on sins. on the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, yeah. on the mercy seat, yeah. not just for his sins, but the sins of the entire nation, the sins that have been committed but not dealt with personally and audibly the uh, unknowing sins, venial sins, if you want to use the Catholic term. So the idea behind Yom Kippur was this universal status where sin was being judged and that you all understood that this was going to be a hefty price to pay. Something is dying for the things I wasn't even aware of. And this is the only reason we have a state before God that's anything other than wrath. So the idea of Yom Kippur and there's end times, symbology involved in this as well as being a picture of the tribulation as a whole. But the idea would be that, is this day was meant to be when the temple would serve its primary purpose in that they would go to the very presence of God and model, essentially, the crucifixion and foreshadowing. Jesus's spilling of his blood for all of our sins universally, the lamb would be universally covering the sins of all of Israel, so nationally, I guess. But the a picture, of course, and all the other uh, traditions that have become associated with it can be discussed, perhaps, if you would like further inquiry. But what's interesting is, again, I emphasize that point. It was the day of the year where the purpose of the temple was most fulfilled. Every day it served a purpose right. in offering sacrifices for sins. But we go to Israel today, you don't got a temple let alone a Ark of the Covenant or a mercy seat upon it where you would offer the blood right. of this non-existent Lamb. So how is it being practiced today? Well, as far as the Jewish religion is concerned, those who are Messianic Jews, those who believe in the Messiah, uh, know that... The Yom Kippur has been fulfilled, that our sins have been universally atoned for for all time, the author of Hebrews says. Once for all, literally. But uh, those who are in the Orthodox community and the nominal Jewish community who are anticipating a temple for nothing else than historical reasons in the latter, they don't have An opportunity to celebrate Yom Kippur in any other capacity than this state of mourning and even then because it's ironically been replaced instead of with mourning over your sin it's a justification of your sins through pride what do I mean by that well today and you go to Jewish communities and synagogues and so forth they'll take this day and the days leading up to it by the way where they reflect on their good deeds and their good intentions behind those deeds and ultimately see if they, in this bizarre Zoroastrian pagan sense, balance out the bad deeds that they have committed in violation of God's law. So when they're asking themselves, you know, Hashem, was I a good boy this year? That is what it looks like now. But if on the other hand you were to go back then, it would be the entire nation literally on house arrest saying, I wasn't a good boy, and there's something dying right now because of that. So notice the flip. In the absence of the Messiah, the whole point's been missed. But as far as we as Christians are concerned, we're standing with the Messianic Jews where we can, like every day, be thankful that blood was shed so that ours didn't have to be.
2: Yeah, there was another uh, ritual that was involved with that regarding uh, two goats. Uh, One would be killed and its uh, blood sprinkled on the altar. The other would have the priest lay its hand on the goat. And pronounce the sins of the people, the sins and rebellion of the people on the goat. The goat would then be led away as far as possible into the wilderness. Uh, we get our term scapegoat uh, mm. from that. And it's a the picture The goat would scape. It was a picture of God removing our sins as far as the east is from the west in that particular picture. You know, as far as the Day of Atonement and, you know, what does it say to us as believers? Well, first of all, it tells us to be really grateful that we're not under that same sacrificial system, because those sacrifices, as was mentioned, the Day of Atonement, would remind people every year just how bad and how far short of the, far short of the glory of God they had actually come. It was only when Jesus came and paid the price for our sins, dying on the cross, that uh, that uh, sins could be actually washed away. Um, we don't. Uh, there are, are, are some that uh, kind of liken this idea to, well, well, we should practice the Day of Atonement and and so on. Well, I guess it depends how you practice it, but uh, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11, we're told, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You know, it's so interesting when uh, people get involved with this idea of, oh, I've got to, you know, rehearse all my sins, and I've got to go over them and over them and over them. Uh, you know, it seems like we're doing something that's really godly. And believe me, if the Lord's showing us areas in our lives where there are sins, he's going to convict us of these things. But he never convicts us to shame us. He convicts us to change us, to bring us back to the place where we realize the enormity of Christ's sacrifice, the price he paid to wash away those sins, but also uh, to bring us to a place where we receive the healing from our sins that God wants to give to us. And so, you know, when people ask the question, should we celebrate again uh, the Day of Atonement, I think Yom Kippur uh, an excellent reminder to us of another event that took place surrounding the death of Jesus when he said, it is finished, the next thing that happened— Was the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom. That huge veil, uh, Josephus describes it in some detail in his histories, uh, was something that was absolutely probably terrifying to the priests who were there because that's what separated man from the very holy place of God, and nobody could go into that holy of holies without risking certain death. Well, you know, why the tearing of that temple from uh, curtain from top to bottom? is because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Because of that, uh, they're not just put on a goat and let out into a wilderness. Uh, they're removed as far away from us as the East is from the West. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the law and following the law was a shadow of good things, but in Christ we see the fulfillment of those good things. And the thing I worry sometimes about people Uh, that uh, will, you know, make a a point in their lives about celebrating Jewish festivals and things like this, is it's almost like they're taking a step backwards. Uh, You know, we are told that the law was a shadow of the good things to come, but Christ is the fullness. Uh, You know, I heard it explained this way once, and it was John Corson who said, uh, you know, when we go back to the law and uh, the practice of festivals and and Sabbaths and and so on, you know, these things were shadows. It's almost like, you know, we are like a married couple, uh, or a couple who's engaged to be married, and finally the big wedding day comes, and they've been separated for, for months and months and months. They finally get to see each other after all this time on their wedding day. Could you imagine how strange it would be if uh, after the pastor pronounced them husband and wife and said, you may kiss your bride, if the groom knelt down and kissed the shadow of his bride when his bride was standing right there? Uh, I think that's what happens to us when we settle for these rituals. I mean, we can certainly learn a lot from them. Jesus certainly fulfilled them. But if we get stuck in the idea of, oh, boy, you know, I better keep these things again, boy, we've really missed it. We've really committed a serious error and probably should go back and read the whole book of Galatians and get it out of our system. So,
0: Thank you, Katie, for that question. Thank you for the, the answer as well. We have a, a question come in on uh, through Facebook um, from Adonai. Adeni. Adeni? Oh, thank you. I was going to apologize yeah. for the... he's our friend in uh, in Nigeria. Oh, and good.
2: Sometimes he's in uh, Ghana. He runs a Calvary Chapel uh, Bible College there.
0: No way. Wonderful. Yeah, heavily
2: Muslim area. He's a convert to, from Islam to uh,
0: being a born-again believer in Christ. We love Adeni. Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. Say his name one more time for me. Adeni. Adeni. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, his question is from Acts 23.3, um, which says, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you. With whitewashed war for you sit to judge me according to the law and do you command me to to strike contrary to the law so he has a two-part question question one was paul reviling ananias in reaction to the strike he received or making a predictive declaration of the death that would befall him ananias that is and the second part is going by paul's statement in the verse above how can we explain that paul didn't know ananias was the high priest as he claimed in verse Five. Thank um, you. If I'll, you, I'll take the
1: second part why don't you take the first oh, I <laughs> wanted to point out he was being sarcastic uh-huh. oh, when, when we, it comes to fulfilled prophecies there's two alternatives to the question Uh, If it was a fulfilled prophecy, why didn't we get told about its fulfillment? But if it wasn't a fulfilled prophecy, are there examples of other things that would then be in the future? And to the second part, yes. For example, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We don't have a written record of that being fulfilled. doesn't mean it was a failed prophecy. But if, on the other hand, we were to note this is a divine curse, on Ananias, uh, saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. By the way, he was calling him a urinal. Uh, The point of emphasis (laughs) that was being made was there's two options. This is either God's going to strike you as a prediction or God's going to strike you as an explicitive. You just got punched in the face and you want to return something in kind. I think that's allowed, especially given the fact Paul points out, you're striking me unjustly. And that's what ticked him off the most. Because yeah. there's nothing more frustrating than when the legal system is the one abusing you, not just the people who should be subject to it. Yeah. But then the question that's following up, when he says, do you talk to the high priest like that? And Paul goes,
2: I didn't know he was the high priest. Um, You could tell who was the high priest pretty easily, couldn't you? Well, in a sense, um, there's three possible explanations as to why Paul didn't recognize this guy as as a high priest. Uh, Some people believe that he didn't recognize this guy as the high priest because he'd been gone from Jerusalem for 20 years. And uh, people change in their appearance, they get older, you know, again, the uh, high priesthood would have uh, passed on from a couple of different people, so it was something like, whoa, you're the high priest. Can't believe it. Uh, you know, the other uh, think that it might have something to do with what we read in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul talks about how he suffered from a disease of the eyes. He told the Galatians that if you could have taken your eyes and given them to me, you would have done so. We had such close fellowship. Mm. So, you know, again, uh, a lot of early written church traditions indicate that Paul did suffer from a disease of the eyes, so probably couldn't see all that well. Uh, But the most likely explanation is... Is uh, Paul being sarcastic, uh, basically saying, I didn't think anyone who could act in such a manner could be the high priest. So, uh, you know, again, at that moment, Paul perceived that half the crowd were Pharisees and Sadducees, and them against each other by pointing out that he was on trial for believing the resurrection of the dead and, and the whole thing debate, turned yeah. into a riot so <laughs> but there you go
1: yeah so no if you don't take into consideration paul's being sarcastic at times a the whole book of galatians isn't going to make a lot of sense to you but that's also allowed he was definitely uh quick with his whip like tongue yeah so uh
2: you know again uh you know maybe it was a little of both maybe it was the lack of eyesight it certainly uh was an indictment of how they were running this kangaroo court, which was custom designed to Railroad Paul into an early death. So yeah, so just to recap, uh, as far as
1: Ananias's death being predicted, we can't verify that or deny it, so we won't come to conclusions. Being a divine curse, it could just be the fact he was punched unjustly. I think you're allowed to be mad. Noting the second question, well, again, there are opportunities and options. Could be both, could be one of the above, but it's important to note the crux of the situation was the same people who put jesus to death unjustly were also abusing his representatives in the same way
2: yeah i, I don't think the first possible theory about why he didn't recognize the high priest really holds water in that paul kind of knew who was who and what was what being a pharisee of the pharisees and he went to school and, with most of these guys <laughs> and yeah i mean uh, if i went to a, a alumni reunion at the u of a i'd probably know who was who and what was what unless of course um i had forgot to put my contact lenses in that day in which case i would be blind as a bat mm-hmm. and probably not recognize people from farther away than about 10 feet i think there's part of that but i think uh, it was probably paul's rye way of saying uh, you know wh- what a travesty this is you're here playing holy man and you're
0: having me struck without being on trial so mm-hmm. yeah. yeah thank yeah. you thank you so much for that that question and god bless you in your ministry out there we're so glad you're part of the the show a regular yeah i understand yeah so thank you so much we're coming up on the end of the show here pretty soon, I have a one more something. Uh,
1: yeah, one more question. We can finish from Dave, who wants to know about the Shincheonji Church and uh, Chairman Lee Man He. Obviously, we can't go into all of his doctrinal statements, but the rumor is, and we'd agree that it's a cult. Instead of going through their quotations, we'll let you, Dave, do your homework. How do we recognize what a cult is? Yeah, we
2: got an acrostic. We throw out on that. It's C U L T. Uh, What do they say about Christ? Uh, This particular church says that their leader is Christ, that uh, Jesus wasn't God. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, The U stands for, what is their understanding of Scripture? Can you only understand Scripture based upon the teachings of their group? They say that their leader, uh, this gentleman Lee, uh, has the only true interpretation of the Bible. L stands for legalism. Uh, They will basically say that you have to follow their guidelines, their strict rules in order to be saved. Uh, The T stands for trust. Do you trust in Jesus for your salvation, or do you trust in the group? I would say on all four of those, uh, this uh, group definitely passes the test of a cult. And if uh, you have a check in your spirit about a particular group, uh, don't ignore that check. You know, uh, just because they're enthusiastic or, you know, Mm. seem to be uh, talking the God talk does not mean, or even if they're successful and are drawing a large number, doesn't mean that God's in it. Mm. So cult,
1: what do they say about Christ? How do they understand the scriptures? Do they have a legalistic approach towards salvation? And who is their ultimate trust in, Christ or someone
2: less? Or an organization. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Wonderful. Well,
1: we'll do our uh, closing notes for the people and uh, wait for the music to come on. That's right. <laughs> absolutely. Thank yeah. you
0: for, for joining us. What a wonderful hour that we've we've had. Scott and Sean, thank you so much. Father and Son team over Yeah. Here.
2: And uh, later on uh, this evening, uh, we're going to be uh, going through a whopping three verses of the book of Revelation. All right.
0: But uh, very
2: exciting because we're going to get a real preview of what eternal life is all about in a very powerful way uh, in a very short amount of time. So wonderful, well, Yeah, and so on the,
0: the same channels that you're joining us uh, for Reason for Hope, if you stick around at 6.30 p.m., we will be uh, having our service here at Calvary Christian Fellowship on the same channels. So do stick around for that. And once again, thank you so much for being part of the the broadcast. We really appreciate all your questions. If there's anything we didn't get to, we'll, uh, we will ever to do that off air as we look back over the comments. And you have a wonderful day. We'll see you here next time for a Reason for Hope.